Hi, I'm Morgan. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kyle, Technical and Creative Director of Soilcentric. And this is Unconventional Paths, a podcast about the many ways to take part in the regenerative agriculture movement. Today, we talk to Ade Romero Briones. If you don't have land to access, start looking at the story, start looking at the history of the land, because eventually when you do touch that soil and put your hands in the dirt or find the worms, it's that much more meaningful because you understand that this place has story. Ade is a lawyer and food policy expert working as the director of the Native Agriculture and Food Systems Program for the First Nations Development Institute. In this role, she works to preserve and support Native American food systems and projects. She's also an executive producer of Gather, a film that documents the growing movement amongst Native Americans to reclaim their spiritual, political, and cultural identities through food sovereignty. Through her career and numerous degrees, Ade's written extensively about food safety and the protection of tribal traditional foods. Our conversation with Ade covers her childhood on her grandparents' farm in Cochati, New Mexico, the importance of story and connecting with the land, and our changing relationships with time and attention span. Ade, thank you so much for joining us. We are really excited to talk to you today. I'm so excited to be here, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. On this podcast, we talk a lot about regeneration and regenerative agriculture, and we like to start by asking our guests what regeneration means to them. And we do this because we think the term is really in flux right now. It means a lot of different things. It has a lot of different applications, be that agriculture, be that business, society, organizations can be regenerative. And you have a really rich background in food policy and indigenous food systems and food sovereignty. So with your knowledge and expertise, we're curious what regeneration means to you, because I think the future of regeneration is going to be best served by bringing in a lot of different voices and diverse ideas about what the word and the movement means and what it should be. Thank you. I don't think anybody, as many conversations as I had about the topic, have have ever asked me what my definition is. And my definition actually comes from my grandparents who, who like tell me that's the default. That is the normal of any life system, whether that be plants or animals or community that we live in. Like the cycles have to be um, cycles that are continual. So I think the word continuation, um, continued existence are ways I would define regeneration. And really, I think when it comes to present day, regeneration is almost like a return to that old definition of constant continuance. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for like my grandparents and their worldview and the worldview of the Pueblo I come from, like every system that we operate in should be a cycle of continuation and constant renewal. Mm. And so that is like normal. That is just like life and existence and being. And it's only now in the present that we actually have have to use a term to define mm. that normal for many Pueblo people that already exists. 
that uh, I love the idea of that being of it being that it's just part of life. Like it doesn't have to be defined because that's just the way things should should be or are. You wrote a paper or you co-wrote a paper where you refer to indigenous land stewards as practitioners of concentric ecology. That feels like this kind of all-encompassing mindset um, that kind of maybe regenerative principles and practices are born out of. Um, could you like maybe go into a little bit of detail or explain what concentric ecology means? Yes, and I have to give much credit to Enrique Salomon, who's Ramuri from the Tarumara Nation um, across the border. But he coined the term concentric ecology. And when we talk about it, it really means that we're connected to all the systems that give us life. Mm. And in turn, we give life to those systems. So when we think about like water systems and how much they contribute to like our bodies and our plant life and our lands, um, we are related to them in that way. Like we're physically part of existence together. And so concentric ecology is really just the concept that we are related to a lot of the things that we consider innate now or lifeless or things that we call resources, whether it be plants or animals or land bases, like in mainstream culture, those things are often seen as resources or commodities. But concentric ecology is really the idea that we are connected in very intimate ways through like this life force that connects us together. And um, I think that resonates with a lot of like indigenous epistemologies mm -hmm. and worldviews on how we see the world. When we say things like all my relations or to all my plant brothers and sisters, like those are forms of concentric ecology mm -hmm. that are in everyday vocabulary. And that's concentric like like K-I-N, like kinfolk or my kin, like of, of relation. Absolutely, like family, right, yeah. Ah, I love that. That's really fantastic. And I just thank you for explaining that more. What that brought up for me, and especially when you're talking about this continuum, when you're talking about uh, what regeneration is to you, is this responsibility that we have to the generations that come before us and the generations that come after us, especially when dealing with the land. And a lot of our current agricultural systems do not think this way. It's about extracting what you can from the land right now for a profit. It's not about taking into consideration the land stewards that have come before and then thinking about how what you do to the land now will impact the generations that come after you. Hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I think I've been thinking about this more often, um, partly because, you know, when I think about agriculture and like the time frames that we're dealing with, which have become more apparent because of COVID, like everything has to happen quickly. You have to move quickly. We have to grow food quickly. And it just impresses upon us this idea of time. And when we look at the concept of time over the course of our generation, it's become shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. 
I think now like the attention span is like less than 10 seconds or something because of the onset of social media. <laughs> yeah. And we see that in like our agricultural systems, right? Like we see all of these seeds being developed so that they can grow like within a few weeks, mm. or we see like yields being measured and divided by the amount of time that they of their growth cycle. Mm-hmm. And so we're just ever shortening this idea of time. And then when you talk to indigenous people, seven years is like a really short period of time. We're talking years. Mm. And we actually like talk in terms of generations and these concepts of like relationship over a long period of time are really getting lost on us in present society because we think of time as this shortened within our lifespan and in indigenous communities we're talking about generations of lifespans and really like those are just as present and influential as like our present life Mm. and so this idea of time really has a can be detrimental to when we talk about the growth cycles of food and about animals and thinking about what our baselines are for like what our goals are environmentally. And it it's, I wish more attention was given to this idea of time mm-hmm. and how we conceive of it and implement it in what we're actually doing presently. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a foreign concept for me as a white person. I mean, I can trace my family back a few generations, mostly to Europe. But when you're talking about indigenous people, you're talking about a hundred generations back and this deep connection to the land that is built into your DNA Hmm. almost. And it's such a hard concept to understand when you don't have that kind of connection to a place. And this is not something that you need to solve, but what do you think is a great first step in helping Hmm. people who don't have access to this um, long lineage to understand this connection to the land and to understand the indigenous worldview and how closely it is tied to place? I don't know if you know a man named um, Kamuela Enos. Like when he, he's native Hawaiian and he's really cool and he taught, he's like an economist and he's into business, but he's very indigenous. And he often says like, really like indigenous people just have like years and years of R&D. And when he says that, <laughs> I think that says a lot about this concept we're talking about because I don't, Oftentimes, indigenous people are seen as like spiritual or they have like these special connections with the land. But I think it's a really human trait to like love something and be part of something when you've been there for a really, really, really long time. Mm-hmm. Totally. So when you started out saying, like, I know my family history couple generations, three, four generations back, mm-hmm. like to me, that's the first step. Like, recognizing that there are relationships to places and people that come before us, Mm. like come before our life. And that, you know, once you kind of, this idea of of setting your roots, 
and you have children on a piece of land and they have they have their children and they have their children this land becomes part of you and it's like at some point it becomes a spiritual relationship but really it's just relationship just existence together and I think that's the one of the most beautiful things about people who work the land, whether they be farmers or indigenous people, is that like you start to build relationships with the land, even if it's over a period of 10 years or 100 years. But that sense of responsibility can't help but enter into that relationship, especially if you see it change over, over your lifetime and the lifetime of your children. You can't help but like be attached mm. to what's happening there. And indigenous people have just been attached and seen these changes for, for years, generations, for thousands of years. Many people, many indigenous people say for a millennia, because that's how long we've been on a land, mm. a piece of right. land or ancestral land. That, that makes me think about um, kind of what you were saying earlier about attention span and about thinking, observing over that period of time and how if if we're kind of so caught up in this very 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 you know flash of a moment kind of attention span how can we have that kind of longer uh viewpoint of what is changing around us and how our actions are interact or yeah how we're interacting with our world that does make me think about revisiting time just from a how are we paying attention to our surroundings perspective as well? I think you're absolutely correct. Like it's not only time, but when we live in a society that frames things in these short periods of times or frames our relationship to land by putting it in a box or putting it in property titles, you as an individual are only responsible for this part of the earth. Mm. We are somehow disconnected from seeing not only over long periods of time, but outside those boxes that are attached to things like property titles. And so it really kind of inhibits mm. the kind of information that we process because we're in systems that tell us like we have limits on how we can view the problems we face. Uh, yeah. Going back to the property, the box of you know, literally drawing a line, creating a fictional divide between this space and this space. It also makes me think of drawing a line around, like, this is a seven-day week, and therefore, and it starts over here again, and now we're at Monday, and up oh, now it's Friday, you know, like, it just, it makes me think about all of these fictional lines that we're drawing for ourselves that create real definition in our mind around how we're looking at things, but aren't necessarily, uh, helpful or, or even good. Yeah, I but I do think like humans need to organize themselves somehow, right? And so some of these lines are good, but we I, I think the issue is that when we think of these concepts as the only way, mm. then that's when we start to limit ourselves. We also need to make room in the way we think about ourselves in this world um, in more than just one way, like we have to make room that to to understand there are other ways of thinking and other ways of viewing and other ways of processing information that have validity into in in the solutions that come from those kinds of thinkers and those kinds of systems. 
And so really it's like, how open-minded can we be in the structures that bind us? Mm. That's, I think that's like the human calling really. Wow. Can I shift gears just a little bit? You grew up uh, in New Mexico and your grandfather is a farmer. Did you grow up working on the land? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that. My grandpa's name was um, Zero, and uh, he was a Cochiti farmer, just like many other grandpas in my community. And we were a subsistence farming community. I say subsistence because that gives people an idea of what kind of community it is, even though I don't prescribe to that term. A dam was built in our community before I was born, and so it took half our agriculture lens When I was six or seven, that's when the dam started leaking and all the agricultural lands were flooded. And so essentially the entire community couldn't farm anymore. And so I grew up in the period where my community had to figure out what to do and who we were going to be in the absence of our lands. And so I spent the early childhood growing up in the farm and then the rest of my childhood watching my grandpas and grandmas fight the United States Army Corps of Engineers and the United States for the mitigation of our farmlands. Mm -hmm. What ended up happening with the dam? Yeah, it took me like after college, I realized that my community is not unique in that like the Army Corps of Engineers has had a consistent existence in Indian country and has flooded many communities. Right. And like some of the most major dams in America are on indigenous lands or on reservation lands. And so what happened in my community is that um, we're, you know, we're 800 people at most. Most of the grandmas and grandpas in the 80s graduated eighth grade, perhaps went to high school. um, And you're you're taking on the, the most powerful government in the world. And my grandmas and grandpas said, we were going to do that. We were going to take the United States to court because there was no alternative. Like we, we wouldn't be in existence if we couldn't be farmers and adhere to the responsibilities we had to the lands. And so the, we took the United States to court and in the settlement, the department of justice said, okay, we're going to pay you for your lands. And the grandmas and grandpas said, no, "No, we don't want to take your money. We want our lands back. And Mm -hmm. so it took another probably 10 years for the United States to figure out how to create lands that we could farm again on. So now, like the construction took about 10 years, but we have an entire drainage system under the reservation lands so that People can farm. So it was in the early, the late 90s and the early 2000s that people returned back to farming, Pueblo farming, like traditional farming. Wow, that's a that's amazing. That's great. That's wonderful that's, to hear. It is. And I think about my grandmas and I think about my grandpas. Really, like that is a like I can see them in my head as a child, like sitting in some of these meetings and seeing like the grandpas coming in from the fields and they had like muddy boots and like overalls rolled up because they're literally walking in fields of mud. And then the Department of Justice lawyers with like shiny patent shoes and 
suits and white shirts, and it was just like a stark contrast. Wow. So you have several degrees. You are a U.S. Fulbright Scholar. Uh, you have a Bachelor of Arts in Public Policy from Princeton. You have a law degree from uh, Arizona State University College of Law, and you have a, a degree in Food and Agriculture Law from University of Arkansas. Um, I wondered if you could kind of walk us through the choices to gain expertise in all of these really distinct areas, and I wonder how that ties back into kind of the story that you just told of your grandparents fighting uh, for their land. Thank you for asking that question, because it's a really good one. And I'm actually really embarrassed that I have so many law degrees, because (laughs) my grandpa would always say, like, you went to all this school and paid all this money so you could come home and be a farmer. (laughs) It's like, I could have saved you lots and lots of money. (laughs) And I think he's right. Like, when you look at the generation after the dam was built, in my community, you will find engineers, you will find lawyers, you will find very educated people because we were reacting to what was happening in our community and it defined us as Pueblo Mm -hmm. people. We all wanted to ensure that our people, I mean, it was a painful time. It was watching our grandmas and grandpas cry and, you know, contemplate in stressful situations made all my generation in Cochiti like be so adamant that we had to be able to have these conversations and contribute to the conversations and situations that would empower our people and protect our grandmas and grandpas. And so really that was what the impetus for my decision to go to law school. And I really thought that that was the way to help my people, but I realized like you're enthralled in the legal system, which by the time an American Indian person gets to the legal system, it's almost like they're lost already because they're already in a system that like wasn't built for us. Mm. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's not very kind to us. I do think there's a lot of victories in American Indian law and in the Supreme Court, and they're getting better. But really, it's a system that, you know, we didn't construct. And so um, I went home, and I returned to my grandpa's field where we grew corn for several seasons. And then I realized, like, there's so many issues happening in food and agricultural law that that's what I wanted to do. Like, that was my sweet spot. And um, now I, I... see the world much differently because I do see food and agricultural law as this like big, huge body of knowledge that not too many people really think that detailed about, but it's an incredible body of law. And when you apply that to American Indian people, that can be helpful for the people who are putting their hands in the soil. Mm. Ultimately, to me, that's who I'm trying to help are people who are working the land. Your law degree, would you recommend others who have an interest in fixing food policy or would you still tell your younger self that the law degree was something to pursue and something that was worthwhile for your career path? Absolutely. I do think there's a a point of like no return where you kind of get sucked up into the jargon and the policy and the legal stuff Mm. that really takes you away from 
like being on the land and growing food. But I can tell you, like, growing up in a place like Kochiti, it makes you realize, like, people have different strengths. I was an avid reader. I could read a book in, like, a day. I was, that was my thing. Now, ask me to grow a plant with my grandpa. Like, he gave me my own little special part of the field. <laughs> but, like, my brothers, who are the growers in my family, they, they, they can throw a seed out the window and it will grow. So I think we all have different strengths. And, like, to me, whatever field people choose, like, it should be contributing to the betterment of that community. And absolutely, like, I think about the law and food and agricultural law, like, I do think there's more, there's so much room for Indigenous people in this space, because there's so many connections to a lot of the legal fights, and even the economic fights that are happening throughout Indian country, from like, how conservation easements are processed or looking Mm -hmm. at water law allocation and treaty rights Mm -hmm. to like how um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs manages agricultural lands or non-agricultural lands. I mean, there's so much here. There's so much substance to work with in this field. Right. And these issues have been impacting indigenous people for generations. Absolutely. So you're now the director of programs for the Native Agriculture and Food Systems wing of the First Nations Development Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing now for them? Yes, I I tell people I have the most awesome job in all of the world <laughs> because I get to work with indigenous communities who are working on food and agriculture projects. And First Nations is like a philanthropic intermediary so that we get funding from foundations or even sometimes government programs and we're able to allocate them to Indian country, Alaska, and Hawaii. Could you tell us about a specific project you've worked on recently in this role? Oh gosh, there's so many to choose from. I think we've almost hit 500 different projects or over 300 at the very least like my current favorite is 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 standing rock not only because like people know standing rock but there's a wonderful woman named petra one hawk and a wonderful man named pete red tomahawk and they are working on um, the elders program in standing rock in which like elder gardeners who know about traditional seeds then create these gardens for the community that are then distributed within the community with Lakota value sets and Dakota value sets. But also they're trying now to get traditional hunters and gatherers involved in these institutional programs so that the food system is then based on a very traditional one when a lot of tribes are being pushed to to have more mainstream institutional feeding programs. Mm. A lot of the work you're talking about is revolving around food sovereignty and helping communities take control of their own food systems and reconnect with the land. And a lot of this involves passing on generational knowledge to a younger generation so that these practices aren't lost and, uh, are continue to grow and 
continue to be part of a community's uh, collective knowledge. Can you talk about why it's so important to pass along this knowledge to a younger generation and how important it is to get a younger generation involved? Yeah, I'm, and I, you know, sometimes I think about this question just in my own life because I do hear a lot of rhetoric about supporting youth programs, um, especially when it comes to like agriculture and teaching young people how to grow um, or have operations that support their communities. And I never could figure out why it bothered me that there was so much rhetoric around these kinds of programs, whether they be funded by the government or even by some like national Indian organizations. And it's really, it bothered me because really in order to have a program that's truly supportive of food sovereignty, the communities need to have control mm. of the education systems that the youth are learning in and from. And really we see still a lot of control in Indian country of our education systems by the Bureau of Indian Education or like extension programs that are usually outside of the community or mainstream agriculture institutions who are coming in and trying to help indigenous communities. But we really need complete control of these youth education programs that teach indigenous values and indigenous stewardship and indigenous growing practices in order for that youth program to really make impact on food sovereignty. And I, it bothered me because when I think about the history of agriculture in our country or the history of extension in this country, like these were systems of education imposed on communities to transition mm -hmm. them into civilized value systems mm -hmm. or right. civilized growing systems, which probably look nothing like our indigenous food systems or had nothing of to course. do with our, were actually created to eradicate some of these systems. Right. And so when we talk about youth programming, I, I'm always cognizant of thinking about how these youth agricultural programs are controlled and formed. They really need to come from the communities themselves. And so I, I think it's very, very important, if not critically important, to have these kind of programs, but they must be controlled by the community. Hmm. They must be controlled by like the traditional growers in order to really make sense for indigenous communities. Like we don't want another era of Indian boarding school where the boys were like, you know, given hoes and told here, plant these seeds. Right. <laughs> and become like less Indian. That's right. not what these current conversations should mimic or even have a sense of. So I, I think it's a critical conversation, but we do have to be careful of the details. What you just said is reminded me of how inspiring and energetic and full of fire um, the youth were in the film Gather, which is absolutely a film that everybody listening should go watch tonight. And just to give a little background, Gather is a film about indigenous food systems and indigenous food sovereignty that Aday was an executive producer of. Exactly. So thank you. Thank you, Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> As I was watching that film... I was thinking to myself, like, if 
this would be a very inspiring story. I mean, this is a very inspiring story for me as a white person, but as a person who, uh, uh, who might be indigenous or native, uh, it would feel like uh, just uh, a call to just to to the land. And I wondered, um, was that some of was that was there an intention around that uh, for the film Gather? Yeah, I. Well, yes, because um, when we first started talking about Gather, when we. Think when I was thinking about some of the conversations like that we just talked about, sitting in rooms talking about organic agriculture or sustainable agriculture or regenerative agriculture, I would find myself in these rooms and thinking like, oh my gosh, I wish I could just take all these people and have them come witness some of the activities that happen in indigenous communities because it's like the unfolding of brilliance mm. in front of your eyes and people are so happy and people like have this relationship with lands and their foods, especially when it comes to traditional food and with each other that that is just so remarkable. Mm-hmm. And it's not technical, but it makes it it helps you see the beauty in like what people do and when somebody gives food and how people grow food or how people gather food like there's a beauty and an intimacy that sometimes is lacking in these conversations around agriculture and so we really wanted to display that we really were just saying let's show the beauty but then when you see it on film it speaks to young people that shouldn't be surprising to me because, you know, when we look at indigenous communities and their food systems, like young people are like the crux, the relationships they have with the elders are like the connections, that one building block that really these systems are meant to attract. And so when it, we saw it on film, it was just like a beautiful happenstance mm. that some of that was also captured in those images. So this is, this is moving on a little bit, but a big part of this podcast is takeaways for people who are interested in connecting with the land, um, who may not have access to the land or may not even be familiar with working on the land. Um, so like, what are ways that people can support indigenous land stewards and help to form this collective restructuring of how we exist with the land? Yeah, I, that is a really good question. And for I really have an emotional place in my heart for people who want to connect, who want to connect with the land, but don't have land access. Like I know what that longing is like. And I think there's so many indigenous communities throughout this country who have been displaced from their lands, mm-hmm. who want to reconnect for their, to their lands. And they can't, whether right. it because of property law or because of distance or because of development. And so that longing is like a real, it's a real human emotion that like can move mountains. Mm. So one, I would say, tell people to embrace that feeling Mm. because it's like the earth Mm. calling us Mm -hmm. or like the ocean calling us. It's like something we just can't resist. And then second, like one of the most important things to indigenous communities is like hearing story, talking story, understanding what stories come from that land and who and who are the people who hold those stories. And so I think about every piece of earth that we are on in the United States has an indigenous 
community attached to it mm -hmm. somehow or has stories attached to it. And so history, not only like when we think about American history, that's actually quite recent. Like there's <laughs> yes. so many errors of history before that, like learning about the history of the land is really important. And it teaches us how to see those lands differently. Like I think about, you know, even the streets I look out, look out at, on, or even like my own home, I think about, I know like every owner who owned it before me. And I know the people who used to have a village there. I mean, and it teaches you to see things differently when you pull up a rock from that land, like there's, it just has more depth because you know somebody probably touched that before you. Like this idea that there's something new and virgin really doesn't speak to the really deep connections and roots that we already have to places, but we don't know that unless we know those stories. Mm. And so like, if you don't have land to access, start looking at the stories, start looking at mm. the history of the land. Because eventually when you do touch that soil and put your hands in the dirt or find the worms, like it's that much more meaningful because you understand that this place has story. That's great. Oh. <laughs> wow. day. is there anything else that we haven't covered today that you'd like to talk about? Yes, I did want to talk about this conversation I had with um, this young man. His name is Sam Barr, and he's from the Pacific Northwest, and he's a tribal historic preservation officer. And I heard him speak, and he's really young. And he said, he told this story about how his people, you know, have this relationship with salmon who are then, like, become the soil that mm. grow food in. And he said, when we talk about these lands, like we're talking about generations and generations of salmon, but then we think about how long it takes for bones, whether they be human or animal to disintegrate into the soil, it can be anywhere from 50 to 200 years. And so when we talk about soil and we talk about the land, we're literally walking on the bones of our ancestors and that should never be taken lightly. That should always be honored. Right. And so when you step and walk on this earth, like that's something we should all carry, that we're walking on the bones of our ancestors. Wow. And I just, I really like that story. And I, I share that with you today. I have to say that that makes me appreciate the, the name that we picked for our organization, which is Soil Centric, so much more and really uplifts it. I want to do even more great things because of that. So thank you. Yes, that's why I was like, soil syndrome. I have to tell them that story. <laughs> that is beautiful. That's such an amazing story. And it just reinforces what I think of is sometimes this disconnect between science and indigenous food systems is that science really does need to design and experiment mimic the exact conditions and that can be a hard thing to do and especially because land is such a microcosm land is so specific at each location and each geographical region i mean the land in one part of the country versus the land in the northwest has completely different inputs you know the land in the northwest has the bones of salmon 
um, the land in the Great Plains is used to the buffalo. It's it's so specific, and there are inputs and outputs in each place that's that's evolved to make a specific region thrive. And it's so important to remember that land is hyperlocal and needs different things in different areas. And one one last story because you just it just triggered. One time <laughs> I was talking to my grandma about because I studied food safety in school, and so you know I learned about microbiology and microbiome and how you know the environment and specific locations have microbiome specific to that area. And I always told my grandma about what I was learning in school. And I was like, yeah, the Uso, like these plants have like these little organisms that we can't see that like make it react to other things. And she goes, a day, that's what we call spirit. You're talking about the spirit of the plant. And I was like, yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. She's like, of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I love that. That's such a great story. Oh. Ade, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. It's been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Unconventional Paths. Please head over to soilcentric.org slash guide. On Ade's guide page, you'll find a list of all the resources we've covered with her, as well as additional resources to help you plan your path to regeneration. This episode was produced by us, Morgan Levy and Kyle Lawson. Diana Donlin is the executive producer. If you're enjoying Unconventional Paths, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Since this podcast is about land, we'd like to acknowledge the indigenous people who came before us and are still here. This podcast is produced in San Francisco, home to the Ramatushaloni people, and Missoula, home to the Salish, Pondere, and Kootenai people. Our theme music is by Mestizo Beat. Stay tuned for our next episode of Soil Centric's Unconventional Paths.